Happy New Year. We hope you had a wonderful holiday season, and we wish you all the best in health and happiness for 2020. On this episode, Michelle Weaver joined us on the podcast. Michelle is a 21-year breast cancer survivor. She talked about the loss of her sister four years prior to her own diagnosis, getting tested for the BRCA mutation, educating herself on the impact of the BRCA mutation, and then becoming a nurse practitioner so that she can advocate for and help educate others about the genetic mutations. Take a lesson in. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Michelle. Michelle is a 21-year breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed at the age of 38 with triple negative invasive ductal carcinoma. Michelle is also a BRCA1 carrier. So thank you, Michelle, for being a part of the show. We appreciate having you here. It's super exciting, and I always love talking about my own experience to help others. Wonderful. So I want to hear a little bit about your story. So you were diagnosed 21 years ago. What did you find a lump? Were you doing a self-breast exam? Were you going in for a mammogram? How did this all happen for you? So I was um, having some breast pain at the time. I'm a nurse and I worked for an OBGYN physician and I was pretty hypervigilant because my sister had died four years before that. So I was already having mammograms and um, her breast cancer um, was aggressive. And so we were just kind of following me a little bit more closely. My mammogram had been 10 months before that and was normal. So I just presented with breast pain. Okay. And I, and so I, there was yeah. not a lump. It was just kind of sensitive to the touch. Yeah. It felt more like I needed to have milk let down, like I was breastfeeding and my breasts just ached. And I ended up having some imaging and was found, they thought to have what they thought was a breast abscess. And, uh, went in to have that removed and that's when they did back in my day they did something called a frozen section in pathology so you kind of found out right away so they did a frozen section and um, it was it was a aggressive breast cancer okay I didn't I've never heard of the frozen section I do like the fact that you you get the results right away um, just because so many times we're waiting days to hear so they just kind of told you right then in the in the office? I was in the recovery room because they had sedated me a little bit. I had mine under uh, local, so okay. they sedated me a bit. And once I kind of woke up, um, my surgeon, my OB that I worked for, and my husband were standing there, so I knew something was up. Right. Okay. And, I mean, at this point, you had been going for mammograms because of the, um, you know, the passing of your sister and, uh, my sincerest, um, you know, apologies for that 
um, you know, or sympathy um, for having that experience. But so how long had you been being, how long were you monitored um, prior to the actual diagnosis? So your, your sister passed away, you said four years prior. Were you being monitored kind of immediately after she was diagnosed or after she passed? Or how long was that, you know, how long were you getting mammograms before you were actually diagnosed? So pretty much um, when she found out was when I started getting mammograms. And I did have one other lump that was just an excisional biopsy that they just cut the area out that was benign. And that happened after her breast cancer diagnosis. So I would say probably the four years before she died. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, you kind of had some experience with Mm -hmm. the, you know, mammography and doing all of that stuff. Um, So this was a little bit different for you. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, so what was, what was your course of treatment? What happened from there? Did you go for a mastectomy? Did you have chemotherapy, radiation? So I went, I had to go back the next week because they needed to do, to check my nodes. Back then sentinel lymph nodes were a new thing and there was one, only one radiologist here that uh, knew how to do the procedure and he was out of town for two weeks and I was just like, oh my gosh, cut this out of me like right now. So um, a week later I went back for a re-excision of um, some of the area in my breast and also had a full lymph node dissection. And my nodes were negative, fortunately. And I guess, you know, one of the things I love to talk to um, my patients about is I love educating them up front to help them be proactive. Mm -hmm. I was a nurse back then. I worked with women in OBGYN offices and called people and told them, you know, hey, your breast biopsy shows whatever. And so not knowing that lingo, even though I was a nurse, um, I didn't do myself any favor. So I do love to educate patients up front so that they've at least kind of heard those words and can kind of advocate for themselves and ask, ask better questions when they show up at the oncology providers because it's just so overwhelming. So my favorite thing to do is meet with those ladies beforehand so that they can go into those appointments better prepared. And as far as my journey goes, I, you know, this was 1998. And so um, genetic testing had just kind of started happening back in 1996. The gene was actually discovered in 1994 by Mary Claire King. So it was new stuff. But I had heard about it, and I asked to be tested. And, of course, it came back a variant of uncertain significance, which is what we all hate to hear in genetics because that doesn't really necessarily give us an answer. But so it was you, quick. did you have the genetic testing prior to pursuing any course of treatment? I had, I did, I had it, they actually put my portacath in a week later in that surgery where they did my lymph nodes and did the bigger margins and they drew my genetic testing specimen from my port to make sure my port was working. And so then that got sent off. And then um, I proceeded on with, you know, I was I was up for bilateral mastectomies, but my providers thought that that was overkill. And at this point, we know I have this variant of uncertain significance, most likely deleterious is what it said, which means harmful. Right. So it, it was reclassified, but I went on down the path of just 
not really being a great advocate for myself. I had a lumpectomy, chemotherapy with adromycin and cytoxin. Back in my day, you only got taxol if you were node positive, which I wasn't. And then um, I had radiation. And then I started worrying about my daughters who were 14 and 10. So I started doing um, some research with the help of the people at Myriad Genetics and learning about genetics and what this meant for me. And uh, realized about three years later, after research and going through all my treatments and getting back to life, that... um, I had a high chance of getting it again and went back and said, hey, I, I want bilateral mastectomies. And at that point, um, I also had a breast MRI, which was also new back then. When you did breast MRI back then, you did one breast at a time and you had to have days in between so that you could clear the um, contrast. Oh, that's awful. So that was fun. Yeah. Yeah, and, that's terrible. I mean, it's yeah. terrible doing it both at one time. I, I can know. imagine having to do it in two different sessions days apart yeah yeah it was not very fun no that's barbaric but like I say I'm still here to bitch about it so (laughs) it's all right (laughs) so um I uh let's see I had the mess then they of course they saw something on the MRI and I had been complaining about this pain in like my ribs and my sternum which was kind of terrifying because that's where my sister's recurrence was and they were doing all these weird x-rays on me to see if I had maybe fractured ribs from my radiation but they could never really find anything but the MRI showed something that they wanted to biopsy and I was like forget it were I doing bilateral mastectomies and my only option for reconstruction back then was a tram flap so I had bilateral mastectomies and a bilateral tram flap um they were not doing like implants or anything at that point in time nope or they were but because I'd already had radiation I couldn't and they didn't feel like my skin would accommodate the okay implants right yeah that radiation is really kind of like the gift that keeps on giving yes Um. (laughs) it is still to this day (laughs) for sure I yes I can definitely relate to that. Um, Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. Okay. So just the tram flap and the, the tram flap is pulling the the tissue from the belly. Is that where they pulled it from? So they make an incision from hip bone to hip bone, and then they kind of, uh, kind of in the lower area, it kind of goes across kind of where the top of your pubic hair starts. And then they go up sort of around your belly button and that skin and fat, and must they use your rectus muscle and um, all of that then gets tunneled up underneath and reconnected to um, you know they use the vascular system and reconnect that and then that gets made into your breast mound mm-hmm. um, and then there's a couple of tweaking surgeries after that so you do get a tummy tuck so that's a bonus but um, you know getting using your rectus muscle for reconstruction I'm kind of abdominal weak abdominally and have to really think about what I'm doing sometimes like I can't do sit-ups and things like that anymore Um, fortunately we have procedures like um, the deep flap now which is where they don't use the muscle they just use the fat and the and the blood supply and the nerves and stuff interesting I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that at that point in time they were using the muscle and Mm -hmm. you know obviously there are are impacts as a result of that I mean it compromises your abdominals and your mm-hmm. core is a huge part of the structure of your body. It sure is. Yeah. And it's your rectus muscle, which is the main stabilizing muscle right. of your abdomen. So, 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you so when they found something on the MRI was when they went back in and they did the mastectomy, did they find out that it was recurrence or was it something else? No, it was benign and just tissue that was just annoyed from the radiation. Okay. Yeah, that radiation. Thankfully. <laughs> darn yes. radiation. Thankfully, but yeah, that darn radiation really is the gift that <laughs> keeps on giving. <laughs> it is. Oh, okay. Um, and so then after that, I'm assuming you were kind of monitored for a period of time and then... Did they, because you're BRCA1, have they continued to monitor you or have they just kind of said, well, you know, kind of come back if if anything pops up? More than anything pops up. So I was seen by medical oncology up to my five years and then um, just kind of released from oncology. And of course, you know, if you show up in the ER for anything, I remember one time I had that thing where you get the crystals in your ears and I was dizzy and they're like, oh, you've got a cancer survivor. We have to do a brain MRI. And I'm like, really? I'm just a little bit dizzy. So, um, and I've had um, a couple of times I've had like this twitching, like, you know, how your eye twitches, my, mm-hmm. my breast area kind of right where my tumor was will kind of twitch a little bit. And I get this weird, like twitching feeling in there. And then most recently, this spring, I was on three airplane t- trips in a row, and one of them was to Greece to my daughter's wedding, which I'll have to say was very wonderful and surreal yeah. to be there at that because she was 10, and I didn't think that I would see her graduate from high school. So to Aww. be at her wedding in Greece was pretty surreal sitting there. I know yeah. it was pretty awesome. Aww, pretty awesome. Wonderful. But when I got home, I had some lymphedema, and I really, even though I've had um, lymph node dissection on that side, I haven't struggled with any lymphedema for like, I don't know, 18 years. So after it just wasn't getting better quickly, and and I fly a lot, so there just wasn't a reason. So I ended up um, having to have a CAT scan, and I've had MRIs here and there um, of my chest area when I've had those kind of twitchy pains just to make sure nothing was going on and, and it hasn't and so I'm I'm pretty good to go I did I didn't talk about my ovaries so I had endometriosis in my uh, mid-20s and when I was 32 I ended up having uh, my left leftover ovary and my uterus out so I had a hysterectomy and very thankful that I did that was before I knew I was BRCA positive so very okay. glad that my ovaries were gone at that point in time. Thankful for endometriosis. Right. <laughs> Who knew you would ever say that? I know. I know. Because <laughs> that so. is a monster within itself. I also had endometriosis, which I yep. think was related to my medication. But um, yeah, that is a beast of a of a disease. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, in all the histories that I take, it just seems like there's some connection between breast cancer and endometriosis. I always say one of these days I'm going to do a study on that because I just wonder how how related that could be. I would love for you to do a study and then we'll have you back mm-hmm. on so you can report on that because... <laughs> report on that. Yeah, I really feel like there is a, a solid connection somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't start having issues until I started taking my medication and they could not figure out what it was, but I had really bad endometriosis. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, really the blessing in disguise is the fact that you had that, went and had your ovaries removed, did the hysterectomy, and then found out later that you were the BRCA1 
you know, that you have a BRCA1 uh, mutation, which would have ended up leading to the recommendation to remove that stuff anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so kind of going into the BRCA1 mutation, so, you know, you have this diagnosis, your sister has this diagnosis. Um, do you have any other family members that also have the um, mutation? Have they been diagnosed with cancer? Um, tell me a little bit about your family history. So my sister was never tested because she died in 1994, which is when Mary Claire King discovered the gene. Okay. We can only assume that she was positive based on her age at diagnosis, and she was estrogen progesterone negative. Back in her day, there was no HER2 testing. So just from the time she was diagnosed, me being diagnosed was we had HER2 testing. So we can only presume that she was positive. My There's about 26 grandkids on my maternal side of the family. Wow. And um, you would, I, I have a huge family. My mom's one of seven children. So there's been not that many cancers for that many people. So I do have a first cousin who is, and I want to point this out, she's related to me through her dad, my mom's brother, because I feel like that's one of the misconceptions that providers tell patients is you don't need to be tested because you're related through your dad and men can't pass it on and um, she's your cousin. Yes. So I've had some of my cousins be told that. So So she was I was told that same thing. Sorry to interject. I was told the exact same thing that, you know, it didn't matter. And I think that that's um, a really big misconception that leads to many, many women not getting assessed when they should be. I had a very significant history of cancer on my paternal side of my family. And the doctor was like, you only get breast cancer from your mom. Mm -hmm. Not true. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm glad that you make a point to say that. Yeah. So this um, cousin was 34 when she was diagnosed. She knew I had the mutation, diagnosed about the same time I was, and she decided she didn't want to know. So at 38, she got a second primary, got tested, and she was BRCA positive, and I call them misspelled words in your genetics. She had the same misspelled word that I did. So we know that her dad, who's my mom's brother, had to be positive. My And he died recently around age 75 from heart issues and never knew even he'd never been BRCA tested to my knowledge and never had cancer. Um, And then my mom is who I inherited it from. I'm an Irish family, so I'm not Irish and Polish. I'm not Ashkenazi Jewish. So my mom is who I inherited my mutation from. And my mom is 78. She had her ovaries out when she was younger for something else. I'm not really sure what. Um, but she's never had cancer either, and um, she is a previver still at age 78. Um, my brother was tested, and he's BRCA positive, and he's not had cancer, so he's a previver. And my younger sister is a um, true negative. She's she did not inherit the mutation, which is amazingly awesome, and very yeah. grateful for that. And then my two daughters both got my good copy so of the BRCA gene. So they're both BRCA negative and they're also true negatives. Awesome. So yeah. very, very, very cool. I also have a first cousin who had prostate cancer because, and he was told by his urologist that again, that he didn't need to be tested because he's related to me through his father 
And old guys at age 62 get prostate cancer. And he had, in prostate cancer, we look at something called a Gleason score. And his Gleason score was seven. So he does meet criteria for testing. And to my knowledge, he hasn't been tested. So I decided I needed to go back to school and get my nurse practitioner so that I could be even a bigger mouth about genetics and how it gets inherited <laughs> and that, yes, we your insurance will cover it. And yes, there's a way to pay for it. And you know, I never force anybody to be tested because I feel it's a pretty personal decision. And I know there's been some psychosocial things happen in my family because of genetic testing. Right. And so when I'm counseling patients, I, mean, I spend an hour with people talking to them. We talk about some basic genetics. We talk about um, variants of uncertain significance, insurance companies, psychosocial issues, um, I, I draw out my family history because it has all the examples I need to talk to. So I just really wanted to be the, one of those providers that could follow the patient the whole way through. If they decide to pursue testing and they're positive and we prevent cancer, get other people tested because it's a huge snowball effect. You know, just think of the relief for my sister and my two girls to know that they're true negatives. But then there's always the guilt of that too, especially like, you know, my big, one of my biggest fears was one of my daughters would be positive and one of them would be negative. So um, that's um, something that I talk about when we're doing this. And I just, um, I just really felt like I would have more tools in my tool belt to help patients if I went back to school. As a nurse, I couldn't write my own orders for testing. Now I can. And I can follow these patients because not very many people know how to take care of hereditary cancer patients. And there's other hereditary cancer genes out there besides BRCA1 and 2. And now we have all these other great risk stratification things too, like automated breast ultrasound. We're starting to see polygenic risk scores. We have computer programs called Tyrecusic. So it's um, it's an amazing field and very powerful to help people understand what their risk is. Well, I love the fact that you took took this experience for yourself and turned it into something so positive that you are able to give back in a way that not necessarily every nurse practitioner or doctor oncologist even can because they've not walked that walk. They don't necessarily have that experience. So I think that, you know, mm-hmm. taking that upon yourself and just saying, I, you know, I want more education to do this is, is fantastic and really helpful because I feel like there are people who are just unaware and, Sometimes for people like me, I don't have a strong relationship with the paternal side of my family. So I didn't have all of the information to know. In fact, I didn't know that my grandmother died from ovarian cancer until I was in my 20s. I had no idea. And at that point in time, I was going to be assessed. Um, I was getting assessments for um, ovarian cysts consistently. But at no point in time did I have that information to be able to share it but again, you know, the response when I did have it was, well, you don't have to worry. So I think it's really important that we have people like you who can advocate and really help individuals to understand. So recently what I've heard is that there is a push to have all women, and I would argue that it shouldn't just be women, um, mm-hmm. that all women who will be di- who are and will be diagnosed with breast cancer um, will automatically be tested for the mutation. 
So I would totally agree with that. And I also agree that men need to be tested too. I mean, I think that's a huge population that we're not paying as close attention to. We're not, you know, at all. No. And we're not. And the reason, so my entire nursing career has been in women's health. When Gonzaga was going to admit me to grad school and, you know, I'm 59, I'll be 60 in February. I just graduated a year ago in May. So I was Good an old lady you. at grad school <laughs> because I was just so like, err about this and making noise about it. Oh, that's and so awesome. Gonzaga, Gonzaga called me up and said, why are you doing family nurse practitioner? You're a women's nurse. And I said, because I got to help the men. My brother's BRCA positive. And they're like, oh, cool. Welcome to Gonzaga. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the men are a big population that we're missing. And so I was going to ask you, with your brother having the BRCA1 mutation, does he get any kind of screening for breast cancer? So that's another kind of sad part about the psychological and social aspects of testing. Um, As far as I know, he does not. Uh, He won't talk to me about it. And, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, I texted him a clinical trial he could participate in, and he just doesn't respond. So I don't, I don't know what his screening is. Um, I've tried to go get him to let me take him to friends and have friends in high places in genetics and um he just won't discuss it with me so um i i just don't know what else to do to reach out so you know and him and i had those conversations before he tested of what are you going to do with the information how's it gonna affect your relationships with other family members what's it going to be like to tell your kids if you pass that on to them so um it's it's i don't know what he has done right well, and yeah. and I can kind of relate a little bit. Um, I have the BRCA2 mutation, and my brother has not been tested, even though mm-hmm. he does have a, a daughter who is in her 20s. And I strongly encouraged him to just go that, get the testing, if not for himself, then at least for her. So then mm-hmm. we would know. Um, but he's been very resistant and, you know, I haven't talked to him in years about it just because he was very adamantly against it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes we can only do so much and I think, you know, exactly what you're doing is just the education piece of it, right? Just mm-hmm. helping people to understand the importance of it and maybe how it might help them, but not forcing the issue. Right. And I, you know, I just want to make sure that they're well informed about all of those types of issues and all of those things before they consent for testing and why do you want to know what are you going to do with the information correct so um you know that's a that's a huge piece um i only have besides the cousin that i knew that was positive um the only other person is is the um guy guy with the prostate cancer that wasn't tested his um sister was tested and she's negative, but that's it as far as all of those like 25, 26 grandkids. And I've drawn out all the pedigrees. I've sent them all the information that I can. So I just, I just hope that no one else gets it. But you know, when you start looking, I mean, when I talk, when I speak in public, I have this picture from a few years ago of a family reunion with hundreds of people in it. I mean, you can imagine how large my family is. Yeah, And, um, and it's like, when I talk to providers, especially I use 
family photos because I want them to be able to relate my sister's face or my all my cousins in that picture of the hundreds of people that they could be making a difference in the, in those people's lives with this information. And, you know, I'm the older sister. I was the nurse. I had guilt for many, many years of why did Sherry die and I didn't because our, our cancers were literally basically same, 2.2 centimeters, no negative. She had a mastectomy. I had a lumpectomy and radiation. Why am I still here and she's not? And I had to do a lot of what I call post-traumatic growth to finally figure that out. And it wasn't until grad school that and towards graduation that I finally was just like, Oh my gosh, Sherry lives on in my heart and in my hands as I touch all these people and spread the word about genetic testing. And if, you know, she would be happy to have been that person to motivate me or anyone else to do it. And um, she was just that kind of a loving person. And so I have to do it for that reason. I don't want anyone else to watch their sister go through what. I watched her go through at the end of her life and um, leave three little boys behind and Mm. not be able to make her famous chocolate chip muffins with her little grandkids. Yeah. So really, I mean, you're kind of carrying on kind of a legacy for her Mm -hmm. doing Mm -hmm. this, you know, in her honor and in her name and, um, you know, with always having her in your heart as you're having these conversations Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's funny, um, you know, in trying, I opened a private practice um, and I, uh, for my nurse practitioner stuff, and I was trying to make it be the name my practice about her somehow, but I, you know, Sherry Health, that just didn't sound very good. <laughs> and just, I can't try to come up with all these other things. And then my name is actually Ava Michelle. And I've never gone by Ava. So I'm like, I wonder what the name Ava means. And so I Googled it and it means the voice for others. Oh and I'm like, my gosh. okay, that has to be it. Ava Health. <laughs> I love that. I had no idea so. that that's what Ava meant, but that mm-hmm. is, that is amazing. And that's perfect for you. Yeah, it worked out. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Well, our time has come to an end. I feel like we could really chat for a long time. Yes. We haven't even talked about Dragon Bodhi yet. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, Yeah, I uh, hope that I get to see you in Las Vegas if you're coming to Las Vegas. Or dragon boating. We actually decided not to come to oh. Las Vegas, but you could come to Big Fork this weekend. Well, <laughs> maybe a little one bit. Of, one of our mutual friends was just here again and paddled with us on Sunday, oh, so that was super nice. cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe well, San Diego. Probably not this year. We're, oh. we're not going this year, but um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we'll meet soon. Um, we'll definitely get it. Um, get a time so that we absolutely meet in person um, and maybe even dragon boat in the same boat. (laughs) That would be awesome. Yes. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on, being a part of this, sharing your story, also sharing your sister's story and really, you know, giving a voice to some people that didn't have a voice and maybe, you know, giving others a voice when they don't even realize that they need to have that voice So, you know, I think what you're doing is wonderful, and I hope that you do the study on breast cancer and endometriosis, and I know that you're going to continue to impact lives with 
educating people on the BRCA mutations and any other hereditary mutations that there might be. I promise to do that. Thanks so much for letting me share and share my passion, share my story, and um, get to talk about my wonderful sister again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.